Now this evening, I want us to answer a very simple question, a biblical question. And the question is this, what should be our attitude to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? How are we as believers meant to work for it? We see the world around us collapsing and there is so much uncertainty in the time we are living in. Uh, This question has always been important, but perhaps it's even more important now. How are we as believers meant to wait for the second appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ? Now, to help us answer this question, uh, I want us to look at this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 to 11, which we read. Uh, Thessalonica was a prominent city in Macedonia. Uh, it had a seaport on the agency, and it was a really a key stop on, the, on a major a Roman road called the Ignition Way. And so this was an important city. And it was a city that had a church there. The church at Thessalonica, uh, if you know your uh, acts very well, you know that it was planted by Paul and Silas uh, on Paul's second missionary journey. In fact, they only spent a few weeks there uh, before they were run out. They had to be smuggled out. And after they escaped, Paul decided to send Timothy back to Thessalonica to encourage the believers there to stand firm uh, in their faith in Jesus. But to his surprise, to Paul's surprise, um, Timothy came back with a surprising report, right? Uh, the church, of course, was, was, was thriving, it turns out, uh, despite the persecution that was raging in the city against the church, it was actually growing. And so Paul was excited by that. But Timothy also reported, I think, that the the church had a few questions that needed to be answered. And so Paul, having gotten this wonderful news, decided to write to the church at Thessalonica uh, to encourage them and to answer a few theological questions that they had. And one of the questions they had, it seems, relates to the second coming. And in the passage we just read, Paul wants to uh, really... uh, Teach them the proper attitude they should have to the uh, second coming of our Lord. And so there are three attitudes um, he wanted to teach them, and there are three attitudes we should have to the second coming. And I just want us to walk through these uh, today. The first thing, the first attitude we should have to the second coming is that we must expect the second coming of Christ with patience. We must expect the second coming with patience. I am not very good at waiting for people. Even though sometimes I tend to be late for things myself. (laughs) Uh, But the hypocrite in me is not good at waiting for people. Uh, I can easily start to mourn about it. Uh, And I find that the more I care about someone, the person I'm waiting for, the more anxious and grumpy I get when I'm waiting for them. And so I find that it's very hard for me to wait for my wife and daughter. And when they travel somewhere, they've gone somewhere, and I'm expecting them, and they haven't shown up. Well, I'm picking them up from the airport, and they haven't yet arrived. I get kind of anxious. Uh, I start worrying about things. But endless delay exposes in us, endless worry, rather, sorry, exposes in us really a deep lack of trust in God. We should be patient, shouldn't we? The Bible encourages us to cast all our burdens uh, on God because he always cares for us. 
God doesn't want you to worry about anything. Whatever is going on in your life, He doesn't want you to worry. He wants you to trust Him with everything. And this includes trusting Him with the second coming of Jesus. The church has been longing for the return of Christ for over 2,000 years. So yeah, so sometimes we feel anxious about it. What's going on? Why is it taking so long for Christ to return? Has he changed his mind about his people? Not a chance. But we still cry out, how long, oh Lord? How long? Now, we are not the first ones to worry about and to even feel anxious. Uh, the, the Thessalonians felt the same way. And amazingly, they were only living a few decades after Christ went to glory. I mean, at least we can say we have a case. 2,000 years later, they were only a few decades after Christ went to glory. And they were worrying. And it seems this anxiety had actually led them to become obsessed with the end times debate. What day precisely is Christ going to come? They were really keen to know the, the time, the dates, the seasons. They knew there was a day of the Lord. They, they knew it's spoken of in the Old Testament uh, by the prophets. They knew God had promised a day of final judgment. And we've been studying Zephaniah. We've met that in chapter 1. God talks about the day of the Lord there. In Obadiah, in Joel, they knew these prophecies. And, but knowledge of these prophecies made them really get into this end times debate, it seems. They knew that Jesus would appear. He would come a second time to bring his wrath on the world and save his people. But it just felt like it was taking long. They were impatient. They're like children in the, in the, in the back of the car, isn't it? When you're driving, uh, going somewhere with them, and they're always asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Uh, they were like that. And so it seems they put this question to Paul, when, when are we going to get there? <laughs> when is Jesus coming? Um, and so Paul starts this letter, starts this chapter 5, rather, uh, this concluding chapter by dealing with the question they have raised. Look at verse 1 to 3 there. Which is Paul's answer. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, he says. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Paul is saying to the Thessalonians and to us, particularly to them though, I appreciate your concern. I know that you are longing to see Jesus. So am I. I know your question about when he's coming is coming from a good place. I won't rebuke you for asking this important question. Even though you know the answer, right? You know I have nothing more to add to what you have already been taught by me when I was there with you for three weeks and when perhaps Timothy went back. And even in your reading of scripture. I have told you all of this stuff before. You don't need me or anyone else to write anything more to you. That's what he says. You have no need, he says in verse 1, to, for this letter, for this chapter. You don't need me or anyone else to write anything more about this. You know already two important things about the coming of the Lord Jesus, says Paul. You know that his coming will be sudden. He says there it will be like a thief in the night. No one knows when a thief is going to show up to rob them. Right? 
So it's the same with Jesus. We don't know when he's coming. And you know that because I've already told you. You also know that even though Jesus will come suddenly, you know it will not be random. A thief comes at night, at night time. There's nothing random about that. We don't know what day at night time, but there's a sense of order to the fifth plan. He comes at night. We don't expect them to rob us in the daylight. And it is the same with Jesus, Paul is saying. He will come, yes, in a day you don't expect, but he will come in a season when the world is pregnant for his coming. Look at verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Paul is saying Christ will come at a time when the world thinks it has achieved its own peace and security. When it feels it doesn't need Jesus, then things will get worse for them, he says. And it will be in the middle of such a season when the time of peace gives way to a time of destruction that the Lord Jesus will descend in glory. Now that's interesting, isn't it? And it's very easy for us now to really get sidetracked at this point. Analyzing verse 2 and 3. And I think I commend you, of course, to study those verses further. Are we in the season of peace leading to destruction? We could ask such a question. But I think that misses the Paul's main point. You don't miss the main point. When you read the Bible, listen to the underlying mood music of what the scripture is saying. What is the underlying mood music of Paul's words in verse 1 to 3? His main point to the Thessalonians and to us is simple. You must wait for Christ with patience. You know enough, and what you know should lead you to wait with patience. You don't need to be troubled by that. Be patient. Christ is coming. Paul is saying, stop panicking about the second coming. Yes, I want you to expect the second coming. Yes, keep it front and center of your minds. But whatever you do, says Paul, do not become impatient as you wait for Christ. Our Lord is not twiddling his thumbs. He will come at the proper time. He will come at the time of his choosing. So as you expect the return of Christ, Paul says, wait with patience. This is what Paul is saying between the lines. We must wait for Christ with patience. Now, if you have been a follower of Christ for more than a month, right, you already know that. You already know that we must be patient for the return of Christ because no one knows when Jesus will return. What you need to keep remembering is that the reason you do not know when Jesus is coming is that you already know enough. What do you know? You know Jesus. You know Him. Our confidence in life is not based on knowing the details of everything. In life, it's not about knowing the details. Do you know the details of, of every bit of your car before you get in? No, you trust the husband that's all out there, Mortis, looking after everything. It's him you trust, not the car, really. Before you get on the train, do you know the details of what's happened that day out? Everything is being checked? No, no. Your trust to get on that train is based on the trust of the shock horror, Mr. Khan in charge, the mayor, right? TFL and all that, whoever runs the trains these days, it's difficult to keep up. 
It's, it's based on trusting with those people who don't even know who are running it, right? In life, it is, it, is, it is enough for us to trust people that they are caring for details because we know them, we have confidence in them. You know, if your wife tells you she's expecting your child, are you really going to say to her, thank you for telling me, dear, this is interesting. Can you do another pregnancy test? And by the way, while you are at it, please pass through Poundland and buy one of those Jeremy Kyle DNA tests to use in nine months' time. So that I'm just sure, not only are you pregnant, but it's my child, right? No, no, you would not say that. You just trust, we've got a baby coming, and you're excited, you start partying. Because thinking anything else, that, well, that's the end of your marriage, isn't it? We do not ask people we love for every detail. That's the point I make. We trust them. We know they love us, and so we trust them. In the same way, we know Jesus loves us. We know the Father loves us. The Spirit loves us. Let us trust patiently our Lord Jesus is coming, because this Jesus, who has promised to return, has already proved his love to us. We trust the God, God the Father, who has, who has already proved his love and faithfulness by sending his eternal Son, our Lord Jesus to put on our, on our human flesh for us. We trust God the Son who has walked up that road of Golgotha and allowed himself to be crushed on that Roman cross in our place. We trust God the Spirit who lives inside of us as our comforter, teacher, encourager, power, strength, and seal of our salvation. We know enough. So let us trust patiently. The triune God's promise that our Lord Jesus is coming again in glory. That's what Paul is saying. We do not need to be impatient as we see the world around us falling apart. No, we trust God's promise to come and take us home in Jesus. So that's the first thing Paul wants us to learn here. The first attitude, we must expect the coming of Christ with what? Patience. Patience. The second thing is this, Paul wants, wants, wants us, the second attitude we should have is that we must expect the coming of Christ with what? Readiness. Readiness. Have you ever had an unexpected visitor ring your doorbell on a Saturday morning? Have you ever had that? You're just getting up after a late night of TV binge watching, right? You have not brushed your teeth. Your dressing gown has not been in the washing machine for weeks, right? The house is totally chaotic, right? You open the door, and it's your lunch partner from work. <laughs> I was just in the area, and I thought I'd drop in, and we get on very well for coffee, and... And suddenly, you're not as clean as you look when you're at work, right? And your house is not as tidy as it looks on your latest... Instagram update, right? So you're now feeling embarrassed. You're not sure whether to let them into the house. You're like, yeah, okay. You're coming in or do you like, come out, see with a bit, or kind of thing. Now imagine your visitor is Rishi Sunak. That can happen. Did you know he was at the um, Bexley East Police Station not long ago? Yeah, he was there, I didn't even know. So he could show up at the doorstep. He likes the bar, obviously. So he turns up, he has come with TV cameras. Uh, to show us that he's delivering. The Tories are on the way up again. He's delivering. And he shows up on the door. He says, hello. And you know, you know, 
the Daily Mail and all that with their mics, as it were. Right? So he comes. Probably not making as much noise like that. But anyway, he, he, <laughs> he comes, right? And um, how are you feeling when he shows up and you're like that? Like, like a national embarrassment, isn't it? You wish it were a dream, right? You are ashamed because you have turned what should be a wonderful experience, right, into a moment of shame. The Prime Minister showed, has come, and you're not ready. You have ruined it. Well, the return of Jesus will be much bigger than any visitor we've ever had. He's the King of glory. He's God coming in the clouds of heaven to take us into the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. But sadly, it seems one of the tragedies of the Thessalonians, uh, this, this, this impatience they had, is that it's somehow their impatience relating to the coming of Christ had actually led them to even stop living as they should. And actually, as you read on to 2 Thessalonians, the problem gets worse. Some of them even stop working. <laughs> it's quite interesting. So, 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 so it led them to... To, 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 to tolerate sin even. And Paul is picking this up and he's concerned about this. He does not want the Thessalonians and many believers to be embarrassed when Jesus returns. He wants it to be a wonderful experience. And so after indirectly reminding them to be patient in verse 1 to 3, Paul now says to them in verse 4 to 8, they must expect the coming of Christ with readiness. Be ready. Look at this 4 to 5 there. He says, but you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, of course, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light. What a commendation of this young, young church. You are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. Paul is saying to them simply, don't you dare start living like you are still bound down to those useless idols you used to worship. You are not your sin anymore, Paul is saying to them. And because you are not living in darkness, you need to live like people who you truly are, who are waiting for the coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is coming to judge those in darkness. He's not coming to judge you, he's coming to judge those in darkness. So don't you be living like you are part of the darkness. If you now start saying, oh, well, Jesus has probably forgotten to come. Let us indulge in sin. Paul is really indirectly saying, that is contrary to who you are meant to be in Christ. He says that, isn't he? For you are all children of light, children of day. We are not of the night or the darkness, he says in verse 5. Paul is saying, look, I believe God has saved you. I believe, yes, you're struggling with sin, but I believe he has saved you. I believe you are being sanctified. I believe God has made you children of light, says the Apostle Paul. I believe you and me, and notice how he includes himself there, that we are all. That's that's an apostolic commendation. I'm not different from you. We are together in Christ. I believe you and me together, we belong to the light. We are truly converted. And he's indirectly then asking them, isn't he? Am I wrong about this or not? That's the indirect question. Am I wrong? We don't. Verse 6. So then let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. 
Verse 7. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, are drunk at night. Paul is saying, if I am right about you, that like me, you are not your sin anymore, then show it by how you live. If you are really waiting for the return of Christ, then show, show it. And I think that's so convicting. Are we waiting for the return of Christ? Are our lives like those waiting for the return of Christ? That's the question Paul would ask us because the question is asking them. Wait for Christ with readiness. Notice there are two phrases Paul uses there to underscore his desire for them to be ready. Did you pick them up? First of all, they must be awake and they must be sober. Did you pick that up in verse 6? So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep what? Awake and be sober. It's also in verse 8. But since we belong to the dead, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for helmet the hope of salvation. With these two phrases, awake and sober, particularly being awake, what Paul is getting across is this idea of watchfulness. The image here is like a security guard, isn't it? Waiting without sleep for the owner of the house to arrive. And the Lord Jesus in Mark 13 uses that image. I was at the airport uh, recently waiting for uh, Eunice and Abigail to come back uh, from Zambia. And as I was there, I was vigilant, of course, ready in time. I arrived there in good time, ready to pick them up. I would say, um, good 45 minutes. I was there, yeah, traffic, smooth, M25. Got there to Israel, Terminal 4, right? Waiting for them. And so I had time now to take in the airport. And I saw people there who had come there with placards, you know, picking up business clients. And they had placards and flowers for them. They were ready for their arrival, right? And I thought to myself, hmm, this is what Christ expects of me. He expects me, as I'm waiting for his arrival, to, to arrive, to, to be there waiting for him with placard and all, ready to meet the king. Just as those people in the airport, they are there, they are eager, they are waiting. There is expectancy there, a state of readiness. And as I was at the airport, I'm saying, this is a picture of how I am supposed to be in my Christian life as I wait for the coming king. I must have my placard there, ready to welcome him. I must be in the state of readiness. That's what Paul is talking about. I must be awake. Not walk, awake. Right? <laughs> awake. Not just awake, but also sober. Did you notice that twice Paul uses this phrase? Be sober in verse 6 and verse 8. Be sober, he says. And he says, those who sleep, verse, they say, but since we belong to the dead, let us be sober, he says. What does it mean to be sober? Well, being sober means not being drunk with sin, actually, here. That's the context. Instead of being drunk with sin, put on the whole armor of God, Paul says. Put on the whole armor of God. But we belong to the devil, say, let us be sober. What does that mean? Having put on the blessed plate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. If you know your Isaiah, this is, this is, this is literally lifted from Isaiah 59. Verse 17, where God there is pictured as a warrior in armor. 
And as soldiers of Christ, Paul is saying, we must also put on the armor of Christ. Christ, our warrior king, is coming, and we must be ready for him by wearing the armor of what? Faith, love, and hope. This is a, dif- this is a different armor to the Ephesians one. There are two armors in the scriptures. This is one of them. Well, there are actually three if you, 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 pick, you, you include Isaiah, of course. But in the New Testament, there's a, we never really talk about this one. This is the armor of God here, the armor of Christ. This, the faith, love, and hope. Ooh. Do you notice anything about these three things? Faith, love, and hope? Well, these are the same qualities Paul commends them in chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 33. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. That's verse 2. Verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father, what? Your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you notice those three things? Faith, love, and hope. And we've come across them in Colossians. Do you remember that? We looked at them in Colossians 1. Why are these qualities always... They are in 1 Corinthians, by the way, as well. Faith, love, and hope abide, but the greatest of these is what? Love, right? They are there. Why are they there? Because these are the basic qualities of a truly converted life. What is a true Christian? Well, we had one definition this morning. A true Christian is the one who shows evidence in his life of faith, love, and hope. And what Paul is saying here to the Thessalonians is this. The way to be ready for the second coming is, first of all, to Continue putting sin to death and continue to grow in your faith, in your love, and in your hope in the second coming. Don't say you are waiting for the return of Christ and wallowing in your sin. Don't become impatient in waiting by being unfruitful in faith, unfruitful in love, and fruitful in the hope of the gospel. No, be ready for the return of Christ by asking yourself every day, am I growing in my faith in Christ? Am I growing in loving God and loving his people? Am I growing in yearning more and more for the coming of the Lord Jesus? It's interesting here, isn't it? Because hope is an interesting dimension here. What is hope? Hope is believing God for tomorrow. But hope in this context is hope in the coming of the Lord Jesus. That's what they say it says. So in a way, Paul is saying, troublingly, we might say, the evidence of a truly converted life is that we keep front and center the hope of the second coming. Now, a lot of people have said, oh, the early church, they they were really expecting Jesus Christ to come in their lifetime. Allah, that is a true Christian. That's what Paul is saying. The expectation of Christ's coming is one of the evidences of a converted life. Paul is saying. If we're growing, if we love Jesus, we long for him to come. And so as we grow grow in in love, we grow in, in, in faith, let us pray then, Paul is challenging them to put on this helmet, and we can spend time looking at that. The helmet, for a helmet, the hope of our salvation, the second coming of Christ, as you clearly say when he gets to verse 9. Right? So we must ask ourselves, are we growing in these things? The point is that true longing for the return of Christ reorients our lives. If we love Jesus and are longing for him, it should show by how we live, Paul is saying. Well, if the husband has traveled abroad for six months, right? 
and the wife is not having sleepless nights, for all the time is away, does that wife love the husband? No. If she hears then that the husband has landed at the gates of the airport and she decides to go out with friends, the husband is coming but she said, girlfriend, does she love her husband? No. Of course not. We expect a wife who loves her husband to drop every single thing, right? To welcome her husband she loves properly. And that's what Paul is getting at here. If we are true followers of Jesus, if we're truly on the welcoming list, we are there as the welcoming, the, the hosts, we might say, this contest. We must be ready to welcome Jesus. He must be on our minds. We must be people who can't wait to see his face. And we should be like that because you know the one who's coming from heaven is your brother, is your friend, is your king, is your Lord, is your love, is your husband. He's your very heaven. Surely, if you know this Jesus, you want to be ready to welcome And you'll be on your mind regularly that, Lord, when are you coming? And the Apostle Paul here is only teaching us here what we already know deep in our hearts, isn't it? We must be people who are ready, who are longing for the return of Christ. I wonder if you knew that Jesus would come next Sunday, what would this coming week look like for you? It's coming any moment, but if you thought he was coming next Sunday for sure, you knew the date, how would you want this coming week to end? Where would you want to be more faithful in your life with God? Would it be, where would you, would it be at home? There are things to be done which you haven't sorted out in your home life. Would it be at work? You have left some things undone there, some unfaithfulness at work. Would it be in the church? You have not served him here as you should. What would you change? in your life with a weak which person would you urgently seek to share Jesus with as a demonstrate as not only a demonstration of your love your faith and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ but because you know time is short and you love them and you want to get the gospel to them now remember you don't know when Jesus is coming you may not have a week dare I say you may not have an hour Jesus would come by the end of this sermon. Now we hear that and we, it doesn't move our hearts because we don't really believe it deep down. He means it when he says it can be any moment. So we must ask ourselves, who would you want to show more patience, more tenderness? Because you know that the loving Jesus, that loving Jesus means loving and caring for the people God has placed in your life. If you knew Jesus Christ was coming in a, in, a, in, a, in a week's time, how would your management of your finances, Jesus has left in your care, look like this coming week? How would your commitment to the church look like? 
God is challenging the Thessalonians and us. Live now for Jesus, beloved. Oh, we are people who are prone to plan, 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 plan. You don't know what you've got beyond this very moment. Christ could come tomorrow. Serve him now. Serve him now, beloved. Be ready for him now. But you may not even have a week. And it's not just a second coming. Even if we left that aside, there is your mortality. You could die tomorrow. Tomorrow would be your second coming into heaven. As you enter heaven, transformed by Christ, and give an account. Be ready. Be ready. Grow in your faith, love, hope, by growing and surrendering to him. Live for Jesus now. Prepare for his arrival. Friends, we have wasted our lives in sin before we met Jesus. Let us not hold on to the present dying world. Paul is challenging them. Let us set our hearts on the new world to come. Be ready for our Lord when he comes. Be ready to meet your king, your brother, your friend. Be ready to see your Savior and God. Be ready to look into the infinite eyes of Jesus. Be ready to tell Jesus how much you have missed him. Have you missed Jesus? And maybe that's the question for some of us. Have you missed Jesus? Are you missing his physical presence? Do you wish Jesus was physically here with us? He's here now. The second coming promises us that physical presence of Jesus. Do you long for that? Well, if you long for that, then tell Jesus how much you've missed him. And ask him to enable you to have this readiness to live for him. That's the second thing Paul wants them to remember. Isn't it? We must expect the coming of Christ with what? Patience. And secondly, we must expect it with readiness. And finally, and I'll end, we must expect the coming of Christ with confidence. Confidence. Paul is conscious that his correction to these young believers, uh, for them to be ready for the return of Christ, may start sending them into doubt. And perhaps as I was speaking, it planted a bit of doubt in your own life. Am I converted? Am I really? Why then if I'm not longing as I should? Paul is aware of that. They are young in faith. And so what does he do? He ends by encouraging them, doesn't he? Praise the Lord for verse 9 to verse 11. For God has not destined us for wrath. We can spend the whole sermon on that. Just on those words. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Paul is saying, look, I'm not writing these words to terrify you. I'm writing these words to encourage you. And to encourage you to encourage others. You have nothing to fear from the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he has already paid for your sins on that cross, Paul is saying. Who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Paul is saying, you are not in darkness. 
You do not belong to the night. You are, you, you are not heading for the destruction of the night. You are not destined for the wrath of God. Yes, there is the wrath of God coming when the Lord Jesus descends to judge the living and the dead. But eternal hellfire is not your portion, says Paul. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry that when all, when all mankind is finally punished by God and sent to the eternal lake of fire, that you will be numbered among them. No, says Paul. God has planned a good future for you. He has planned a threefold salvation for you. He has saved you. He is saving you now, keeping you. And he will save you on that day. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross, says Paul in verse verse 10 there, has secured for you life with Christ forever. In life or in death, you are safe in him. For God has not destined us for us, says Paul, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are alive or we are dead, we might live with him. So don't despair, says Paul. Be encouraged. And encourage one another. Wait for Jesus with patience, with readiness, and with confidence. And we should be encouraged by that, isn't it? Because Paul is saying, God wants more than just to save us. He wants us to live and enjoy him forever in Christ. Praise the Lord that we are his people. Should be our response. Our final destiny is to be with the triune God himself in the new heavens and the new earth. And the question for us this evening is, does that excite you? Are you longing for this second coming? You should. It should enthrall you. To think that all of this is by grace. Did you notice? It is him. Everything is on him. It is him who has destined us for obtaining salvation. It is him Christ who died for us. It is him who has given us the prize we don't deserve. Life with God forever. It is all on his account. What a great savior. Our God in Christ is. And oh, beloved, Paul is saying this to Thessalonian believers. You know, many of them have paid a heavy price for turning away from idols. A heavy price. Many of them have lost their businesses. Marriages, families become strained. Some of them know people who have died for Jesus. But Paul says to them, there is a happy thereafter. You have a wonderful future ahead of you in Jesus. Be encouraged in that and encourage one another in that. And you know, this is true for us as a church Small and struggling and frail as we are. But it's also true for us as individuals, isn't it? As God's people. Some of your stories of how you, can know, you came to know Christ is, it, it has much suffering in it. Much turning away from a life at great cost to yourself. Some of your stories have, as you're growing in Christ, as living for him, has meant continuous death to self in different ways. And Paul is encouraging us that it is all worth it because Christ is coming. 
And so as we live in the world now with all its challenges, with all that's going on, Paul is saying to us, do not be alarmed at the state of things. And do not be alarmed at the return of Christ. Because your future is not away from him. It is with him. Your future, in fact, is already written. And it is a great future. And maybe there's an encouragement there for someone here, uh, whatever, who's facing a deeply uncertain situation in their life. Where they don't know what tomorrow holds. But the answer is the same. Christ holds your future. He holds your future. Trust him. And more widely, focus on this truth that Jesus is coming back for you in glory. To give you a full happily thereafter that he purchased on the cross for you. Before Jesus comes, we must expect to experience many trials, isn't it? But Jesus has promised that you will endure to the end. You know, this promise here of Jesus' return is a promise of your endurance. It's a promise of your perseverance. It is saying in the Christian life there is a finish line. And Christ is standing at the end of it. And your finish line is guaranteed. And when you be with Christ in that new world, new heavens, new earth, where righteousness dwells, there will be no more sin. There will be no more pain, no more suffering. You stay with Jesus for all eternity. Oh, what an awesome day it will be when Christ descends in glory. And we are caught up with him. And he brings us into the new heavens. But just that moment when we stare at Christ, the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful sight that will be for us to behold. Pick your favorite ten moments of your life. You land a dream job. You travel to your favorite summer destination. You meet the love of your life. You watch your first child being born. Or perhaps for some of you, you push your first grandchild on a, on a swing. Wonderful. You can think of that. Nothing, nothing will compare to the day you meet Jesus. To see the Lord Jesus in all his glory, in all his splendor, in all his transcendent power. To stare at infinity. Perfection. And not only to stare at Christ, but to be transformed by him into a perfect human that Christ in his humanity is. Right. should fill you with thanks. You should long to meditate on that. And it should give you peace in the here and now. Because Paul has remind, reminded us in Thessalonians, in, in Colossians, isn't it? Christ already in you, the hope of glory. So then to conclude, what, how should we respond? Well, those three things. Let's wait for Christ with patience, with readiness, and with confidence. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that our King is coming again. Oh Lord, cause us to be excited at his coming. Cause us to think much of our Savior. And cause us to live in a way that is ready for his return. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.